Let's go ahead and read. For those of us who weren't here this past Sunday, um, really the main focus of this past Sunday in our text in verses 1 through 6 is we really focus on the spiritual blessings that we get in Christ Jesus. Um, Rather than the blessings that we get here on earth, the physical blessings, you know, like Christmas time and the random gifts and the things that we've been blessed with, you know, like physically and just, you know, what, what we've been born into and all these different things, like all those things are good and all, but we know that they are temporal things. And the things that we really need to focus on are, are the spiritual blessings, which are eternal. Nobody can ever take away and they are in an abundance of, right? Like the physical blessings that we get, like they, they have their limitations, right? Like your parents, when they try to bless you on Christmas, they have limitations, hopefully. You know what I mean? Like they can only give you so much because they have really so little. But Jesus on the other end of the spectrum and the spiritual spectrum is I have everything and I can give you everything that you need spiritually. And it never runs out. And we're going to talk about that today where God gives us the abundance of his grace. And we'll get to that later. So that was our focus on the verses one through six. Let's read it. And then I'm going to jump into seven through 12 so that we can start in verse seven. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. This is where we're starting our text. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in him. In him we also have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. How many of you understood exactly what Paul is talking about there instantly? Yeah, me neither. <laughs> oh man, when Paul writes, I'm like, dude, like, can you just write normal? Like, I don't, I don't understand any of this, but I also love it in the sense that I can't understand it right off the bat. So it allows me to really jump in and dive into the Greek words and the Greek text and understand as I break down verse by verse, word by word, and keep it aligned within the context of the chapter within the book and then ultimately within the Bible that I truly understand what Paul is saying. And there's so much that it's so in-depth, it's so enriching for us as believers that it really, it grows us in our love towards Jesus Christ as we learn of the insight and the knowledge that that we're trying to to understand. So (laughs) I really, I'm a very simple person. I like things simple uh, and I like things, especially when they are taught to be simple. So I'm gonna try to break this down as best as I can to understand this in the most simple of texts. Obviously, we're in verses 7 through 12, and really the focus of this text and kind of the first 14 verses 
is the redemption of, of us because of Jesus Christ. And it all happens through what? Jesus's blood. The answer's on the screen, right? It's all through his blood. Now, I feel like before I was a Christian, or even now, if I, if I try to think outside of the Christian realm and, and the church and, and growing up within it, like that sounds really weird and gross, right? Has anybody ever said or said to you like, man, I, you know, something along the lines like covered by the blood of Jesus? And you're like, that is, could you imagine? Like if you literally think about that, like somebody's covering you in blood, that's not the type of like place I want to be in, right? There used to be a church in this building before we moved in here. And I'll, I'll admit it was a really weird church and they had a church van and I never understood it on the side. It was like blood and they had like this, this quote essentially saying like covered in the blood of Jesus or something. And I always thought that was like, I get it as a Christian. I understand like the, the metaphor and the, and the physical sense of his blood, but to anybody else, that sounds super uber weird. Like, and so like what, who wants to be a Christian if you're speaking in those terms? And anyway, so we have to be careful in, in, in our lingo and the way that we say things, you know, because some people may not understand. Some people don't even know who Jesus is. Isn't that crazy? Do you know that like people don't know that that Jesus existed? They don't, and they hear the word Jesus, they just think it's a it's a name of a person. They don't know that it's actually God and that He's in the Bible. Like you would think that more people would know about Jesus than they would McDonald's, but it's the other way around. Crazy, right? People see the the yellow M and they know instantly McDonald's, right? But when we speak of Jesus, they're like, who? Now, don't get me wrong. There's plenty of people who know Jesus and reject Jesus. But I remember we were witnessing here on the streets one year. This was like a, a while ago, maybe seven years ago here, right in Clayton, maybe a half a mile down. And I ran into like a 12-year-old kid and had started telling him about Jesus. And he literally had no idea who he was, had never heard of him before. Is that crazy? It's like we just assume that everybody knows but but not everybody does and so we are going to be focusing on the blood of Jesus Christ and again I'm trying to bring it to a simple understanding that it's not some weird thing that you know like it's sprinkled on us or we you know have to be covered in it you know it I hope you're going to understand as we go through this and hopefully you already do understand what his blood signifies because you have to understand the blood is so important to the redemption of us as, as believers. Without it, there would be no redemption. And then when I speak of redemption, that sounds like a uber spiritual word, right? Like when you guys are speaking to your friends and like texting and Snapchatting, does the word redemption or redeemed ever come up? No, not really, right? Like it's not something that's in our everyday talk. Like that is a Christian terminology. You know, we throw out like all these little Christian terminologies like, I don't know, uh, redeemed and, and blessed and um, what are some other, help me, what are some other ones? Amen. What are some other ones? Give me a good one. Hallelujah. Yeah. Like Jehovah Jireh and, you know, like uh, Emmanuel and uh, gosh, I don't know. There's a million. Anyways, they're like all these Christian lingo terms that some of us use, but we really don't understand the meaning of it. Redemption is this religious term that, that we've deemed here. But I want you to understand, as Paul is writing, this is a letter, it's an epistle. He's writing to the Ephesians, the saints in Ephesus. 
And as he's writing to them, they're not reading this as we are reading it in, oh, redemption, being redeemed as in like this super spiritual term. It was an everyday term that they understood because what was happening in their time that is related to redemption? What was happening in their time that it doesn't happen now in 2019? Well, it does, but it doesn't. We're not used to it. Close. Slavery. Slavery. Redemption went hand in hand with slavery. That's what they uh, understood redemption to be. And there had to be about five to six million people who were enslaved during this time. It, it was a normal thing. So when, when Paul is speaking of redemption, they understand that it relates to slavery. Okay? Not some like Christian church term. Okay? It was understood as slavery man and we you know obviously we it's not our everyday norm here in america does slavery still exist yes obviously i think like it can exist within a mile of our church and we just wouldn't know it i mean there is so much human trafficking it's crazy how many people are caught in human trafficking and that is straight up slavery and the only type of slavery that we ever think of is is the skin color slavery right but there is so much and and it's not the norm per se but it is happening but here in this time it is the norm okay so i want you to understand that as paul is writing this that it's the norm that we have redemption so when he speaks of redemption what what do they understand that as it's the same thing that we should understand it as which means to buy back a slave or a captive making free by the payment of a ransom Right? So we see that totally lines up with slavery back then. If somebody, if a slave was redeemed, what happens to them? Yeah, they become free. Right? They are bought back. They become free from their captive. Right? There is this, this payment of a ransom that is made. So every Gentile, every Hebrew that is reading this, they understand this word that is brought up when Paul speaks in verse 7 that in him we have redemption and we need to understand it in the same exact way okay so if, but if it if it relates to slavery then what are we enslaved to sin right to sin and we'll get into that in a minute so there's, there's this redemption that happens. We are the redeemed, correct? And who is the redeemer? Right? Exactly. We are the slave that is redeemed, that is freed, but there has to be somebody on the other end who does the sacrifice and the payment for us to be freed from our captive and to defeat that captive. And that is Jesus Christ. Now also this, this redeemer, the redemption, that's the one I prayed over too. Where's Bianca? Anyways, it also has the that word also has its roots in the Old Testament, which refers to a kinsman redeemer. Do you guys remember this when we were going through the Book of Ruth, right? The kinsman redeemer. I think we that was one of our discipleship studies was going through the Book of Ruth, and we were talking about the kinsman redeemer and how that's who Boaz was to Ruth or to uh, to. Um, uh, was it? Uh, yeah, Ruth. 
So listen to this. If you don't understand the story, this is what happens. So Naomi's family property, okay, because they had fallen into debt, which means that somebody was going to then take their property because they couldn't pay for it anymore. And since she had lost her husband, she could not afford to keep it and to recover it. So Boaz, who was the closest relative to her, had the right to redeem the property by paying the price for it. And so because he was he was the closest kinsman, he had like the first right to, to, to say yes or no, right? Like before anybody else, it was, it was his turn. And if he rejected it, then it was, it was up to somebody else. I don't know who, but he had the first opportunity to redeem it or not. And do you know what he did? He did. He bought it, right? So that's where we see the kinsman redeemer, okay? That's, that's the understanding of it. And I want to get into that a little bit later. So redemption speaks of slavery, and we are enslaved to sin, as we've already talked about. How are we enslaved to sin? Do you, do you know that you're enslaved to sin at one point? That you were born enslaved to sin? You know that? You were born enslaved to sin, as we find out in Romans, that the sinful nature is passed down from man to man. And you know why? That's why Jesus... That's why he didn't have an earthly father, because it goes through the male lineage. Isn't that interesting? That's how Jesus was able to be born a perfect human being, because he didn't have an earthly father. So he was born a perfect human being in God because of that. And also he was born a human because he was born from a, a woman, right? Mary. So Jesus, in the grand scheme of things, is understands and knows and is sovereign about everything. Jesus even said to himself, listen, in John 8, 34, and we understand this. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. It doesn't, you don't have to learn how to sin. You are born into sin. You have the sinful nature and it comes like that. How easy is it to sin? It's pretty easy, right? How e- <laughs> it is too easy how easy is it to not sin too hard but actually in reality jesus doesn't want it to be hard he's actually made it very easy for us but because we don't focus on him and because we are not close to him because we are not intimate with him that's why it's hard for us to not sin because in reality, what you're trying to do is you're, not, you're trying not to sin on your own accord, in your own flesh. Right? Paul even talks about it. He's like, I, I, the things I don't want to do, I do. And the things that I do, I, I, I don't do. And what happens is you're not being led of the Lord and you're not allowing him, his spirit to overflow in your life. And when he does, if you walk in the spirit, you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. It's as simple as that. But it is so easy to sin apart from Christ that sometimes we don't even think about it, that we just are, are falling straight into it. Romans 5 tells us that we are all born into sin, that we have all sinned in Romans 3.23, right? And because we've all sinned, what has happened? We've fallen short the glory of God. And Romans 7.14 then reminds us that we are sold into the bondage of sin. Like you are shackled by sin. And I hope that you, you know that, you knew that, you understood it, you understand it now. That apart from Jesus, you are shackled to sin. 
you can try all you want it's like literally think of it as a shackle right and it's got the ball on the end and like sin is the ball and you're trying to run away from it what happens yeah like it doesn't go anywhere it stays a foot behind you the entire time if you try to do it on your own accord it's going to happen like that all the time and you're going to run on this wheel like a mouse going nowhere nowhere nothing's going to happen and jesus says look i want to i want to free you from it and so what i'm going to do is i'm going to unchain it and then you are going to be free to go anywhere and do anything but what you're going to want to do is stay in one spot and that one spot is at the foot of jesus but you are more free at the foot of jesus than being shackled by sin and going wherever you want He has redeemed us. And and Paul wants us to know that. He wants the Ephesians to know this, that we have been redeemed through his blood. It is so important that you understand that if you have given your life to Jesus and you accept this, then you are redeemed. And I think a lot of us, we struggle with understanding that we we have been set free, that we have been saved, that we have this grace and this forgiveness. And we put too much... We're too hard on ourselves sometimes. And Jesus says, look, remember, it's not about you. It's about me. And if I said I have freed you, you are free. You are free indeed, right? Ezekiel 18.4 says, the soul that sins will die. Apart from Jesus, because you are a sinner, And because you sin, and if you have not been redeemed, your ultimate path is death. And not just a physical death, we're talking about a spiritual death, and we'll get into that later. Galatians 3.13 says that we were under the curse of the law, and the law brought us the knowledge of our sinfulness, right? So think of like the Ten Commandments. Like, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this. And what... What did that law do for those that that were trying to live by it? What did it do? It made them understand that they couldn't live by it, right? It made them understand that I keep messing up on, you know, command number six and command number four. And especially command number one, that I have gods before my God. And so we understand that we are a sinner and that we need a savior. It, It brings us the knowledge of our sinfulness and that we could not do anything apart from a savior redeem ourselves, right? Like there's nothing I can do to redeem myself because I keep sinning, I keep messing up. Romans 3.20 says, Therefore by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. And Paul also describes as us being held in bondage under the elements of the world, which we see in Galatians 4.3. But Jesus Christ came to this world, he lived a perfect life, he died on the cross, and he shed his blood. He said, it is finished, all for the, the hope that we would then give our lives to him to be redeemed from that sin and from death and the consequences and everything from it. We are no longer slaves to sin, but slaves to Christ. And again, that's a good thing. Romans 6, 17 through 18 says that Paul tells us, the believer, that though you were slaves to sin, having been being freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. 
And in Galatians 3.13, we find that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. And he also adds in 5.1, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not subject again to a yoke of slavery. And Hebrews 2.14 and 15 tells us, And we find that through the death of Jesus, that Jesus rendered powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might deliver those who fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Jesus, when he died and he rose again, like that was that was it. That was that was the victory. It was done. You don't have to live a life in the way that Satan wants you to live, a life of destruction, a life of uh, misery, a life of disappointment and, and sadness and, and fear and loneliness. God did not create you in his image to live in such a way. You understand that? You as a 12 to 18 year old understand that you do not have to be lonely. You do not have to be fearful. You do not have to be depressed. You do not have to be suicidal. You do not have to feel hurt all the time. You don't have to feel embarrassed. You don't have to feel shame. Like Jesus says, I have taken all that on me so that you don't have to. Please understand that because we need to live a life that is reflective of that. We need to live a life that is is joyous, that is freed from that. Is there still going to be hardship in your lives? Is there still going to be like natural disasters? Is there still going to be death? Is there still going to be all these? Of course, because there's evil in the world, correct? And that evil entered when? When we as humans disobeyed. And ever since then, evil has, has been in this world and understand that God is still, God is not the author of evil. I'm getting ahead of it. God is not the author of evil. He did not create evil and bad. But he does have a hand over it. He is sovereign over it. And he can use those bad things for our good. He can use those bad things to make you stronger, to make you better, to grow your relationships with people here on earth, but more importantly with him in heaven. You understand that? Sometimes we think, well, if God is love, then why would he let this happen? Please understand that apart from bad, God is always love. So you're right on that. But he did not, he did not create the bad thing. Okay. But since it's here, he uses it for his good. You understand that? Through our through our disobedience we allowed Satan to have dominion of this world and you have to understand that God is still sovereign even over the bad things otherwise Romans 8.28 means nothing or yeah 8.28 do you guys know that verse we quote it like every dang week all things work together for good those who love God and are called according to his purpose all things now if if we cling to that verse then we have to believe that god is is sovereign over the good and also the bad but jesus says look you don't have to you don't have to live a life you know you you can't be separated from evil that happens but you can live a life that is is free from the evil you don't have to be depressed and broken 
Jesus says, I came here to heal and, and, and to bring you joy and love and peace and all the things that the Spirit of God will give you. In redemption, a price was paid in a substitutionary sense to free an object from its previous owner or the bondage it was under, and that redeemed object now belonged to its redeemer. Redemption means there is a redeemer, and now we are the redeemers. We are his. Listen to this. Look in verse in verse 7 again. In him we have redemption through his blood. In him. And who is him? Jesus. He is the Redeemer. Now, if you guys have been in our study on Wednesday nights in Exodus, we've been talking about redemption. Oh my gosh. Chapter after chapter. And especially, I think it's in Exodus. What chapter are we in right now? 14? 13. Chapter 13. 13. Around 13, 14. I can't remember. We are in 13, but I think right in the beginning of 14, it talks about God redeeming. And and, and it even talks about early on. That's what God did to the Israelites. He redeemed them from the Egyptians, right? He redeemed them. There was a price that was paid. And what was that price? Blood of the lamb. Thanks guys. The blood of the lamb, right? They were redeemed. So they were saved from, from death of the firstborn, but then they were also freed from their captive, their captors, right? They were freed. And not only were they freed, but we learned this past Wednesday that God didn't just say, okay, adios, you're free now. Good luck. But what did he do? He guided them. He was with them. I don't know who said that, but that was awesome. He, he was with them 24-7. That during the day, he was with them with a cloud of smoke and by night, a pillar of fire. He was with them 24-7, guiding them where they needed to go and providing everything that they needed, especially when it came to sustenance and food, right? Giving them manna every morning, except for one morning, but every morning. But that sixth morning, he gave them enough for two days, right? And before they left, what happened? Wednesday night people, what happened? What did they get from the Egyptians? Everything. They pillaged them. They plundered them. Not in the bad sense, but they said, hey, can I have this and that? And they're like, yes, take my gold, take my silver, take my garments, take everything that you need and just get the heck out of here. I'm not, I'm sure that's not what they said. But God, God blessed them in such a way that he didn't just leave them to, to go fend for themselves out in, in freedom, in free land, right? But he was with them, he provided for them, and he gave them an overabundance of things, just as he does for us Christians when he frees us from sin. He doesn't just free us from it, he then provides us everything we need. John tells us that he gives us grace upon grace. He gives you the things that you need to walk this life to get to the promised land, right? And that was the Egypt, the, not the Egyptians, the Israelites' goal was to get to Canaan, which was the promised land. And in the promised land, what was there? Oh my gosh, it was so good. So good. Now, would you rather wander in the desert, in the wilderness, or would you rather go to a land full of, uh, uh, flowing with milk and honey and grapes so big, whether they're big or so much, I don't care, I don't know, doesn't matter, there was plentiful grapes that two people had to hold it by with a pole. Which place would you rather be in? In the promised land, right? But you have to be redeemed and you have to follow Christ to get to that promised land. And Christ has given all of us 
the opportunity to be redeemed. Not everybody is redeemed, understand that, but everybody has the opportunity to accept that redemption, to be freed. And who won it? What slave decides to be continue to be a slave when they have the opportunity to be freed from their captor? From a, a slave, from a captor who does not love you, from a captor who just who just uses you for what he can gain. That sounds like Pharaoh, doesn't it? He didn't want them to let the, the Israelites go because they were bringing in so much money for him. They were building him so much stuff. It was all about Pharaoh. And Satan is the same exact way. So what, what slave, if you were a slave today to a captor, who would say, I, I, I want to stick with this guy. I know he beats me, he mistreats me, and he's, it's horrible to me, and he doesn't care about me. Who does that? <laughs> there's plenty. Of, and then there's this other guy who wants to pay for your freedom. He loves you so much, and he wants to give you an abundance of things. You can either accept that, or you can just say, hey, no, I'd rather stay in this horrible state. Jesus loves you and he wants to redeem you from that and he's given you the opportunity and he will never force you he'll never sneak in the middle of the night and free you from that captor no it's got to be of your own accord and the offers on the table and you have to accept it now going back to the kinsman redeemer remember that with with Boaz and Ruth Jesus when he died and he redeemed us he also fulfilled the Old Testament concept of that the kinsman redeemer Listen, there was three qualifications that, that had to be met with the kinsman redeemer when it came to Boaz and when it came to Jesus. The redeemer had to be obviously related, right? Hence the word kinsman. You had to be related to the one needing redemption. Was Jesus related to us? In the sense of he was a human, yes. Jesus related to us by becoming a man. Okay, he met the first qualification. Two, the Redeemer had to be able to pay the price for redemption. Was Jesus able to pay that price? Yeah. What was the price? Blood of the Lamb. His blood. Jesus was the only one ever able to pay the price because he was sinless. He was sinless, so he was not in need of a Savior. But because we are sinful... We are in need of a Savior. And he was able to, through his sinlessness, because he was a sinless person and a perfect God, he was able to redeem us. The third qualification, the Redeemer had to be willing to pay the price. Okay, so I met the first qualification. I'm, I'm related. Okay, I, I met the, the second qualification. I'm able to pay the price. I have, I have the money. I have whatever it is, the means for it. But the third and the most important one is you actually have to then do it and want to do it, correct? Boaz could have easily said, eh, nah. I don't, I don't want to. Jesus could have easily said, eh, nah. I don't want to. But Jesus willingly paid the price. Do you know that? Jesus, I mean, I probably say it so often. Jesus willingly laid down his life. Nobody took his life. Nobody snuck up on Jesus and took his life. We read that in John. We just got done with it. Jesus knew all things ahead of time. He planned it perfectly. He could have, if he wanted to, he could have stopped it. Remember when he just spoke the word, uh, what was it? 
um, I am, what was it, like 500 soldiers fell down instantly without knowing what happened? Jesus could have stopped it if he wanted to. He said, I could have called down legions of angels. But no, he went through the suffering. He went through the hardship because he wanted to pay the price so that you would have the opportunity of redemption. John 10, 15 says, Jesus said that he would lay down his life for his sheep because he is the good shepherd. And then in verse 18, he adds, No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own accord, my own initiative. It's because he wants to. What greater love is that than for someone to lay down his life for a friend? Right? Isn't that in the Bible? And Jesus did it. And he laid down his life for us. The Redeemer here is Jesus Christ. In him, we have redemption through his blood. Now, here's the important part and what we're getting into. I can't see the clock. Thank you. In him, we have redemption. And then the most important part, the redemption that we have is in Christ through his blood. Why blood? Why does there have to be blood? That's weird. That's gross. But imagine your life without blood. Yeah, pretty much. That's the point. Jesus shed his blood to redeem us from our sins. Man, and why does the New Testament insist on the necessity of Jesus' shed blood? We know from Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death, correct? Death, meaning there was life, now there's death. If God declared that the wages of sin is death, but then eliminated the penalty, he would compromise his perfect justice. If he just said, you know, like, uh, let's just say like somebody murdered somebody and the judge tells the murderer, you're forgiven, don't do it again. Okay, good luck with that. Justice, and God is just, so justice demands that the appropriate payment for the crimes, that there be appropriate payment for the crimes committed. Like, you gotta understand that Jesus doesn't just like, say we're enslaved to a captor, right? He doesn't just free us from it. There has a price to be paid. Like, he then has to then take our place. You understand that? It's not just like, oh, I'm God, you're free. No, it's, I'm God, you're free, and then here I'm going to go take your place, just like he did with Barabbas. Barabbas was set free, but then yet Jesus still took his place upon the cross. There had to be a price to be paid because there was a consequences to our actions. Otherwise, that's not justice. There has to be a punishment. There has to be a price. And Hebrews 9.22 tells us, and we all know this, that without the shedding of blood, there is no what? Remission of sins or forgiveness of sins. There has to be a shedding of blood. That's why we see in the Old Testament with, with the blood from the, the Israelites on the doors and the shedding of the blood from, from the, the lambs and the shedding of the blood at the altars. It was the redeeming aspect Leviticus 17.11 reminds us and it tells us, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. For it is by the blood, for it is the blood by reason of life that makes atonement. So think about it. To put it simply, if the punishment and the consequence of sin is death, then somebody needs to die. Right? And if there is a shedding of blood, which is the life source, and the life source is then taken away, 
then that means that there is a death, and that death then atones for the consequences of the person who was due for. Does that make sense? I think you understand that. That Jesus took your place. That he shed his own blood for you. And it was only through him, because remember, all in the Old Testament had to be a perfect sacrifice, right? But they were perfect in the sense of as perfect as we can find in a lamb. Yet it still it still didn't atone. It wasn't enough because it wasn't a human, because it wasn't a kinsman. Like a lamb is not a kinsman to me, right? Anybody related to a lamb? Okay, good. Because we need to talk afterwards. We're not related to a lamb or anything else. We're related to humans, and humans messed up, so the punishment had to be for a human. So Jesus became human. But in the same instance, not only was he just human, he was also God, right? Because humans can die, correct? But only gods can rise from dead for the dead, or God, correct? Yeah, because when you, when you die, it's done, it's over. Anybody can be a martyr. Anybody can die for some type of sacrifice or, or purpose, but they can't rise from the dead. And rising from the dead shows that Jesus defeated the consequence, the punishment of sin and death, that he is victorious over it. Paul says it best. He says, oh, death, where is your sting? Uh, oh, Hades, where is your victory? Death has no more sting for us, right? It's, it's like a bee without a stinger. That would be amazing, right? For all of you that are allergic to bees. If bees did not have stingers, or whatever the proper terminology for that is. In, in Hades, where's your victory? Like, we, we beat it. We're done. Like, we've defeated death. We've defeated uh, Satan. We've defeated sin. Now, we only defeat him through Jesus Christ, obviously, but we walk around victorious because of that. So Jesus shed his blood for us so that we may be freed and redeemed. And so not only are we free and redeemed from the consequences and the, the bondage of slavery, we also get like, again, we get to go to the promised land, right? Like we get to go to heaven with somebody that loves us that much that they were, they were willing to become human and sacrifice their lives for us. And we get to be with him for eternity. We are indebted to him, right? It's like, I mean, think about when somebody gives you like a really awesome gift. How do you receive that? What do you do? So let's say somebody gives you like, I don't know, $5 for your birthday. They, yeah, right? You're getting at that age where it's about five bucks. And then at one point it'll be like nothing. And then at one point you'll just get cards. And at one point people just forget it's your birthday. But with a $5 gift, your response is typically like, oh, cool, thanks, man, right? But then, you know, like, you got some other guy that comes in and gives you 100 bucks. then what do you do? You're like, oh, like, your reaction has to be a little bit different, right? Your reaction has to be appropriate for the gift that is given. And I am, like, really horrible at that. My reaction is always the same, no matter good or bad. But what if somebody then comes in and gives you a million dollars? What's your reaction? He gives you a million dollars. You freak out, right? You, you're like, oh my gosh, like, wh- what did I do to deserve this? Like, n- obviously nothing. And then, like, the next day, that guy who gave you the million dollars, like, I don't know, let's say, like, he, he, he's on the side of the road and his car broke down. 
and he calls you and he's like, hey, you know, Jeffrey, can you can you come pick me up? And here you are frolicking in your million dollars, and you're like, mm, no, like, how could you not? How could you not do that for him after he gave you a million dollars? I would feel so indebted. I'd be like, dude, you have like a million favors from me. I will do whatever. Right? Now think about this. Think about it in the sense of Jesus. We can't equate it to an analogy. We can't equate it to, to money or anything that we possess because it goes far beyond any amount or anything. And it's so much better because Jesus, it's coupled with love because Jesus loves us. And so what happens is Jesus has then freed me. He has given me this gift that is just more than I can fathom. He has given me something that nobody else can give me. He's given me something that I cannot obtain on my own. He's given it to me. And so what that does for me, it's more than just a, oh, thanks, Jesus. I'll live the way that I want to live now. Some of us do that. But no, now it should be because of your love and the price that you paid, I want to live it pleasing to you. Whatever you tell me to do, I'll do. Whatever you want me, wherever you want me to go, I'll go. You tell me to jump, I'll just jump. I don't care how high, I don't care where, I'm just going to do it. Because you are God and ultimately because you love me and you paid that sacrifice for me. Do you see God in that way? Do you follow him like that? He has redeemed you guys. Paul reminds us over and over, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. You can't put a price on that to be forgiven of your sins. Gosh, the worst feeling is when somebody will not forgive you for some type of wrong that you have done. I hate it. I'm sure all of you hate it. I hate when people are mad at me. I hate when I've upset someone. I've done something that I wish I didn't do. I wish I could take it back. But we know like that doesn't work. And that the least we could do is ask for forgiveness. And yet sometimes they say, oh, no, I'm not going to forgive you. Like, do you understand what you did to me? But God, God, who we have sinned against. When David, when David murdered somebody because he wanted to be with his wife and then he was with his wife and then he got her pregnant and that child then died all while he was supposed to be king of Israel, mind you. He said, when, when he found out his sin, when Nathan came to him and called him out and said, you are that man, David said, I have sinned against who? God. Bathsheba and Uriah's family was like, oh man, you sinned against us. You killed Uriah. You took his wife. You were with her. No, but David ultimately understood that his sin and his fault was ultimately against God. And yet here's God saying, I forgive you. Look at this. In verse 7, it says the forgiveness of sins and and some other translations say trespasses. I want you to understand it's, it's, it's obviously synonymous. It's one and the same. But it's, it indicates in individual acts of sin, not just sin in general. So Paul is telling us that Jesus loves you and forgives you despite that specific sin in your life. Or specific sins. Do you get that? Like, again, what is better than that? Paul wants us to know that our specific 
shameful, embarrassing sins that loom up in our memories to condemn us are all forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ. I think that's hard for us to fathom sometimes because we don't see that here on earth with each other in our relationships. We don't see that same type of forgiveness. But Jesus knows all. He knows your heart. He knows the things that you've done. And yet, he still loves you. Like, his love doesn't diminish. He doesn't look at you differently, like the way that we would look at each other differently if we knew the things that we were doing. He doesn't look at you differently. He doesn't somewhat forgive you. Like He's like, no, it's forgiven. He's like, Jeffrey, we don't even have to ever bring it up again. Because I became sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I took it upon myself. It's done. It's over. I paid the price. And understand this too, that he doesn't just forgive our past sins. What does he do? He forgives our sin from past, present, and future. Otherwise, the concept of being saved, always saved, doesn't work. Once you are saved and you are redeemed, you are redeemed. It's not like God saves you from your captive captor, redeems you, pays the price, and then afterwards you mess up and he's like, go back, let's try this again. Go back to your original captor. You're enslaved again. No, he has redeemed us. We are his. Nobody can take us from him forever. But the way that Paul writes it, he writes it in such a way that he uses the present tense, meaning that we are to continue to receive forgiveness of our sins through Jesus Christ. And that concept comes up in the Gospels when we talked about when Jesus started washing the disciples' feet. Remember that? He started washing their feet, and then he came to Peter, and Peter was like, what? Don't just wash my feet. Or no, he said, don't wash, don't wash me. Like, I'm not going to allow you to get on your hands and feet, God. Like, you're, you're, you're better than that to me. Like, you, I need to do that to you, as in a sense. But then Jesus said, like, so lovingly, he said, look, if I don't do this, you don't have any part with me. doesn't make sense to Peter in the moment. It makes sense to us now. And I'm going to get to that in a minute. And then Peter says, okay, like, I don't want, I don't want you not to be with me. So don't just wash my feet, wash every part of me. Paul was probably like half naked at that point. He's like, wash everything. Okay. Like, I don't, I don't want to be apart from you. And Jesus says, no, dude, you already washed. I don't need to bathe you again. Once bathed, always bathed. Now that doesn't work literally. Okay. Preston, that doesn't work. <laughs> I'm messing, but not. All right. So once bathed, always bathed. Once once clean, always clean. The concept here is that Jesus was trying to remind us and tell us that once you are saved, once you are redeemed, you you are redeemed. It's done and over. But you will continue to walk this life and you will continue to stumble and you will mess up. And, And as you walk, your feet then starts to get dirty. And Jesus says, there will be times, there'll be, it, it might be daily, it should be daily, where I need to cleanse your feet. Just the little part of you. Meaning that throughout our day, throughout our lives, we continue to seek forgiveness from Jesus for the things that we've done. Although we are ultimately already redeemed. Because what, do, what happens 
What happens if we don't seek forgiveness on a daily basis from the things that we have stumbled upon and the things where we've messed up? What happens with our relationship with Jesus? It grows apart. That's why, that's why Jesus said that you have no part with me. Does Jesus, just again, does Jesus forsake you? No. He doesn't. You're, again, you're still redeemed, but our intimacy with Jesus diminishes. And that is when it becomes easier and easier and easier to start falling into sin. And that's when it becomes easier and easier to justify things, to not even think through things, to just start doing things that are apart from God. And that's why it's so important for us to continue daily to seek the forgiveness of Jesus Christ and the things that we've done so that our intimacy stays intact. Redemption breaks sin's bondage and brings us back into a relationship with God, but daily sin still hinders our daily fellowship with God and confession restores our intimacy with Him. It's crucial that we understand that, guys, that we have to experience forgiveness on a daily basis. And that's one of the reasons, you know, God instituted the Lord's Supper, right? Communion. Because what do we do in that time of communion? We reflect and we get right with God. We, We then look in our lives and see if there's anything that's not of God and we seek forgiveness from Him. Because we need that, that, that continual forgiveness to have that intimacy with Jesus Christ. In 2 Peter 1, 5 through 8, Peter lists a number of virtues that are to be added to our faith so it'll be useful and fruitful in our walk with Christ. Things that, that should reflect that we are walking with Jesus. You guys know some of these, right? Uh, also, for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith what? Virtue. Virtue, add what? Knowledge. To knowledge, self-control. Self-control, perseverance. Perseverance, godliness. Godliness, brotherly kindness. And brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And this only happens through our intimacy with Jesus. Through seeking his forgiveness on a, on a regular basis. What Peter adds at the verse after this, in verse 9, he says, For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, and he has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. We have to be reminded that Jesus loves us and he forgives us. Don't be so hard on yourselves. Don't be so hard on like, I'm not, yes, you're not worthy of it, but he has made you worthy of it. Understand that. If God is going to show you all the grace in the world, then you need to show yourself a little bit of grace. For those of you that struggle with being freed and receiving forgiveness, because a lot of us still struggle with receiving that forgiveness. Because what happens is we see how wretched and bad we are. But look at his love. Receive his love and his forgiveness. And Satan always just wants to say, Dude, you... Satan is the accuser, right? He is the, he is the instigator. He will just put things in your mind, thinking, like saying, Well, dude, you're not good enough. Dude, that sin was really bad. Like if people knew what you really were like, Gosh, if... If the Christians, if your parents, if your pastors, if this or that, if they knew what you really thought and the things that you did, you know, he puts those things in our minds. But we have to understand that Jesus has forgiven us. Jesus loves us. 
And if you seek that forgiveness, he will make you clean. He will purify you. He will take away all the junk and the weight and the things, the shameful things, the things that so easily ensnares us. He will clean us and purify us because of the shedding of his blood. So Satan's saying all these things to you, right? What do you do? I think obviously we confess to God our sins. And again, he doesn't look at you any differently. He loves you. He will forgive you. And you say to Satan, well, duh, I did sin. Of course I'm a bad person, right? But guess what? My salvation, my redemption does not rest on my performance and the things I do or don't do. Do you understand that? It does not rest on me. It is not about me. But rather, it's because of the blood of Jesus Christ. It's because of that price. I am free from sin. Is there any limit to God's forgiveness? No. We may know that, but we need to know that. Is there any limit to his forgiveness? There is none. Because what what does Paul tell us? In verse 7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound. Another, Another version, some of your versions might say lavished. God lavishes us with his grace. It abounds. There's, it's endless. It has the idea and the concept of, of waves at a beach. Right? Have you guys ever been to the beach? Ever lived at the beach? Anybody ever not been to the beach? Oh, thank God. Oh, really? Wow. Jonathan, really? We're taking you tomorrow. You haven't either? All right, we're going to go tomorrow, okay? You busy? I'm just kidding. All right. But, but we've all seen the beach. We all know the beach. We all know waves, right? Like, where do waves come from? Ain't nobody know, right? Like, they just come. And they're just there and they're just constantly there i grew up in san diego and i we lived by the beach and it was just constant you could just hear it those of you who who have been it's it's always there has the concept of just repeatedly coming and it's never not there there's an abundance of his grace an infinite god gives to us infinite forgiveness because he has infinite grace think about that Dude, I'm running to him for everything. And he doesn't hold back anything. So, why not? What's stopping you from doing that? You are forgiven. He's paid your price. He loves you. Paul, listen to this. I want you to understand, as we look at the text here, if you look at it in verse 7, Paul does not say, it says, uh, sorry, it says um, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, okay? It says according to the riches of his grace. It does not say out of the riches of his grace. Now, what's the difference? Check this out. There is a huge difference. Now, if if you go to a multimillionaire, right? Because we all know one. If you go to one and you ask for, I don't know, uh, you know, a contribution to your favorite like nonprofit, and he gives you a hundred bucks. Okay. That's out of his riches. That's out of his wealth. He's giving out of his riches. But if you go to him and you ask for a contribution to a nonprofit, and he doesn't give you a hundred bucks, but he says, here, this is a blank check. Fill in what you need. He's giving according 
to his riches. Jesus has given you that, that blank check. He's given you everything that you need in abundance. Paul reminds us in, in other books that it is sufficient. His grace is sufficient. It meets exactly what you need and it goes far and above that. If you need $5, here's $5. If you need a million dollars, here's a million dollars. He gives you the, what you need. There's no shortage of it. There's no lacking in it. Again, look at the word abound, lavished. It never stops. It always comes through the abundance of his riches, of his grace. Man. But imagine, so you may be thinking, okay, well, like, God always forgives. He will never not forgive. So what about those people who think, well, I'm just going to do what I want and then, you know, seek forgiveness afterwards, right? Like, he'll just forgive me anyways. So why don't I just go do the thing that I want to do and then seek forgiveness? Because I know he's going to forgive. I know he's loving. I know that. Do you think that's the right the right heart behind it? No, Paul even mentions it, right? He knows that people are thinking in that idea, in that concept. He tells us in Romans 6 and verses 1 and 2, he says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? When you, this is not the verse, when you know that the beloved Redeemer shed his own blood to secure your forgiveness, it binds your heart to love in him. It makes you want to hate your sin and strive against it all the more. We then want to walk in the newness of life. It gives you desire to hate your sin, to love and follow him. So you're not sitting there thinking, I'm just going to go do whatever I want. And then knowing that he's going to forgive you, go ask for forgiveness. So he's, he's given us the abundance uh, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound to, toward us in all wisdom and prudence. What is this wisdom referring to? What is this prudence? What is prudence? I'll give you an easier word to understand. Insight. Okay. Wisdom here refers to the ability to understand the things of God. He has given us that wisdom. He has given us the spirit of God and who knows the things of man except for the spirit of man. So if we have the spirit of God, then we know the things of God. He has given us that wisdom. What does insight refer to? It refers to the ability to apply the understanding in practical matters. So he's given us that wisdom, that understanding, but then he's given us insight to then apply it and use it, do it, right? To walk in it. And what is that? Having made, in verse 9, having made known to us the mystery of his will. Gosh, I wish we had like another hour. I have to close. The mystery of his will. What is the mystery of his will? Don't think of it as a mystery as like, you got to check clues and you got to go find it. Nobody knows what it is. It is something that wasn't known, but now has been revealed to you. Once you become saved, once you are redeemed, that will, that mystery of God is then revealed once, one that was once hidden. And it is according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. That in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him we also have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. 
that we who first trusted in Christ should be to praise of his glory. Ultimately, what's happening is that everything that we do, everything that we are, the whole plan that Jesus has for everyone and everything for all of eternity and all in history is to bring us all together in one under Christ. Does that mean everyone is going to be saved? No. But everyone is going to have to stand at the foot of Jesus and answer for what they have done. Everyone. And what happens in Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15, is that at one point, those who have died without believing in Christ, Satan, his demons, even death and Hades, will all be cast into what? The lake of fire. They will all be cast into the lake of fire. Philippians 2, 9, 11 reminds us, Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. And at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and of those under earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every person, every single person ever to have lived and to live will know that God is God. And they will have to confess whether they believed before they died or before whether they did believe before they died. They will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is what Jesus is bringing us ultimately to. But at one point, there is this then separation where we find in the great white throne of judgment where then those who didn't believe, where their names are not in the book of life, where you have not been saved, you are then cast into the lake of fire. But for those of us who are saved, we reign with Jesus Christ forever. There is a point to come, and you will see that in Revelation, and we'll see that in the future, whether that's soon or not soon. I don't know whether it's in your lifetime or it's not in your lifetime. But also understand that the purpose of all of this, the purpose of even being here, have you ever asked, like, why the heck am I here? You ever, like, just, like, in class one day, you're like, whoa, what is life? Like, you ever thought about that? You're like, all of a sudden it just dawns in you and hits you and you're like, what, if, what is it? What do we do? What is this? What am I? Like, what am I here for? Verse 11 explains that I have all the time. It says, in him also we have obtained an inheritance. And I can't get into that. We talked about that a little bit last week. We receive an inheritance because we are then a part of the family of God. Being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Remember, God is sovereign over everything, the good, the bad. His will is in the place of everything. He is over everything, the good and the bad. And he's working it together for our good. But he ends with this, that we, us, who first trusted in Christ, should be to the praise of his glory. Your life is for the purpose of his praise and glory. You, personally, you should be praising and glorifying God. Paul said it, remember he said, in everything you do, do it unto the glory of God. Whether eating, drinking, sleeping, gives us some weird examples. He was trying to tell us, everything you do, do it unto the glory of God. And make sure that your life reflects the praise and the glory of God. You were made to praise him. So praise him. You were made to honor and glorify him. So make sure that your life, when people see it, honors and glorifies Jesus Christ and he is worthy of it because what we saw earlier is because he paid the ultimate price to redeem us and give us that opportunity.
Man, redemption and salvation is first and foremost. Redemption and salvation comes first, but then what happens is that we give God the glory. Remember, it's not about you. It's about who? God. But because he loves us, he gives us and he provides us and he shows us the things that we need. Man, that is a great God.